Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a lecture from James Jordan on the Trinity and music. As always, for more information about upcoming events at Theopolis, as well as links to our blog, social media handles, and our YouTube channel, you can find links down there in the show notes. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the Trinity and music. The Trinity and music. Um, And uh, your notes are on page 7 of the red handout book. And I want first to talk about God as person, language, and music. The three persons of God, which we usually say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, can also be called more generally in terms of their particular gifts and place in their relationships, the person, language, and music of God. The second person of God, as we know, is the Word, but the third person is always called breath. The word spirit simply means breath. And as soon as you take a word and put it out loud, you have, well, you've made it out loud, and you have made it musical. You have made it musical, musical, musical. You heard that? And see, all we have to do is just add a little bit more effort into it, and then we are actually making music as we put our words out, and then we think of it as music, and, re- and but in reality, all of our speech is music, and that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. More generally, he's the glorifier, and more generally, the second person of the Word of, the, uh, of God gives structure to things. By the Word, all things hang together, all things cohere, says the Apostle Paul. So it's the second person who is the structure, the spatial relationships of the items that reflect the individuality and personhood of God. Now, those of you that were in the first class we taught uh, read a long essay called 12 Avenues of Revelation where I explored this. And so let me just say that God the Father is the foundation of individual items, particular things, the relationship between those things in space, as we think of space, is the work of the second person. And the transformation of those things and their relationships in time is the benefit of the third person of God. As he takes what is given to start with and glorifies it and empowers it. The Spirit gives power to that which the Father and the Son have set up. Now each of the three persons of God delights to give his gifts to the other two. And so God the Father is not only a person, but God the Son is a person. We can talk to him. And God the Holy Spirit is a person. And they talk to each other. And they love each other. Uh, God, the, the second person of God is not the only person of God who has language as an attribute. The Spirit can speak. The Father can speak. Uh, He is given that. They're concentrated here. The Spirit has life in Himself, but the Father and the Son also have light, life. Each person delights uh, 
to step back and give his gift to the other two. And I'm getting into biblical theology here. But what he receives back is double, right? Because if the Father gives his gift to the Son and the Holy Spirit, if he lets his talent out of his hand and gives his gift to the Son and the Spirit, he receives back from both of them. So if he starts with five, he winds up with ten. If Job loses everything, he winds up with double at the end. This is the reason why things are this way, is the Trinitarian substructure of the creation made in his image. Uh, our God delights to call attention to the other two persons. This is my son. Listen to him. Okay. Well, now, when you pray, pray our Father. By the way, I'm leaving and the Holy Spirit's coming. He's better than me. Be excited about him. And the Holy Spirit come and he makes you say, Abba, Father. Wait a minute. You know, each person of God says, oh, not me. You know, really, it's the Father you should be interested in. No, no. And I think we see this right away in John's gospel. And I'll preach a little sermonette to you. But there's a story that we all know, the story of the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine, his first miracle. And that's where the sermon stops, right? That's not where the story stops. The story goes on, and it's the groom who gets praised for this all, and he didn't have anything to do with it. Jesus said, my this is not my hour. Well, whose hour is it? Well, it's this fellow's hour. It's his wedding. So Jesus makes all this wine, and then he gets all the credit for it. And you see Jesus and the disciples standing back over here smiling, you know. Well, this guy is saying, wait a minute, I didn't, I didn't know I was saving the best wine. I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to standing up in heaven and having Jesus say, I really like that book you wrote on Constantine. I'll say, I didn't write the book on Constantine. Well, yeah. And he's going to say to Peter, you know, that work you did for lepers in India, that was really great. I don't know if that's how it really works. But, uh, you know, that's what Jesus is doing. That's the kind of God we worship. The guy who steps back to glorify other people and tells us, each of us, to esteem the other better than himself. So that's our basic Trinitarianism. And... I would like to just give you something that I think is helpful to me. If we look at things from a fatherly perspective, we ask questions of what is right and what is wrong. Moral questions. And people want to ask that about music. Well, is this immoral music? I can't very well say a certain set of notes is moral or immoral. Uh, but uh, so it's not the right category. If we talk about the Son and the Word of God and the language of God, we're talking about what's true and false. That's the category there. When we talk about the Spirit, we're talking about what's glorious and what's ugly. Or what's expressive and what's banal. Glorious, heavy, the word in the Bible for glorious is heavy. So glorious doesn't have to mean shining. It can mean, you know, a, a painting of a bunch of people lined up at a firing squad and being shot to death uh, uh, in the Spanish Civil War that shocks us, but that can be glorious in the sense that it's heavy, expressive, powerful. It partakes of that element of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, not all music has to be pretty. It can be dramatic, powerful, expressive, uh, like 
the Penderitsky uh, Passion According to St. Luke, uh, which have any of you ever heard? It, you probably have, of course. It's pretty much ugly music from start to finish, deliberately so. Uh, not really ugly, but expressive in such a way that you don't feel any quiet and you get a major chord. You, you finally get a major chord at the, as the last chord in the whole piece. So you, you're going all this distance with no resolution and just chaotic sounds and a narrator who's telling you the story. And it's very dramatic. I've had the privilege to actually be at a concert of it one time in Atlanta. And uh, a bunch of us went over there from college and had only enough money for the cheap seats. But we thought, well, we'll get the, we'll get the good seats after the intermission. <laughs> All these gray hairs will leave. None of them did. But it was powerfully expressive, but not pretty to listen to. All right? But that's what the spirit does. And if we want to analyze art or music, those are the categories we have to deal with. But they're a lot harder to concretize. Uh, I can say what's right and what's wrong. Adultery is wrong. Faithfulness to your wife is right. I can say what's true and what's false. You know, the things that Barack Obama says are false. Sometimes. A lot of times. People on the other party, just about as bad, I think. Okay, we can evaluate true and false. Uh, but music doesn't quite work that either. Uh, it's more, is this glorious and expressive? Now, of course, if there are words connected with it, it may be advocating something immoral. So we can say that. It may be saying something false. You could have a hymn about St. Darwin or something, saying something false. But the music, quay music, paint on a wall, quay paint, uh, is really, the, the question is more in the area of the Holy Spirit where how do you say what constitutes glory? And you know, what, what sounds glorious to me is this kind of music and what sounds glorious to you is something else. And who are you to tell me that uh, Yours is better than mine. I like the art in Spider-Man comic books. And who are you to tell me that Rembrandt is better than that? Just who do you think you are? All right. I like YouTube. Was that the name of this group you were talking about? <laughs> and who are you to tell me that uh, Pateris Vosks is uh, superior? All right. Now, the second thing I want to talk about briefly here is the Spirit as the lifetime and breath of God. This is what the Spirit is. He is the life, the aspect of God which we think of as life is the Spirit aspect. Uh, I don't want to be too bold here. Perhaps Dr. Lightheart should stand up and say a few words about this. But it's almost as if the Father doesn't so much have life in himself as he gets life from the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit gives life, and that means he gives time. And time has its origin. Created time, as we experience, is created. It has a start, and it goes on forever. And it is a series of transformations. Time is never the same from one moment to the next. It's not the same. I just did this. That's not the same as this. Okay. You, nothing ever stays the same. Uh, so you can't, you can't ever have control. 
everything is always changing. That means you have to live by faith alone. But the time in, eter in, in, the, in the Godhead, the equivalent of time, the eternal source of time, is that the Father sends the Son to the Spirit, who sends the Spirit back to the Father. Okay? They exchange this relationship, which is love, as Augustine says, love is the Spirit. The Spirit is the love that passes between the Father and the Son. And in history, God sends the Spirit to bring the Son into the world, who then sends the Spirit to bring the bride back to the Father. That's the movement of history. It's there and back again, which is the subtitle of a novel that somebody wrote, some English guy. All right, there and back again. And that's why we have chiasms in the Bible, A, B, C, B, A, and that's why your life is chiastic, from womb to tomb, from infancy to uh, second childhood, from not being able to walk to hobbling around with a cane. All right? Your life is chiastic. I know some of you have heard this before and you're tired of hearing of it, but you got to let me teach you to the other people. We get up in the morning, you get out of bed, you take off your night clothes, you put on your day clothes, you go out and have breakfast, and then you drive to work. And as you drive to work, you go down 1st Street, and then you take a left on 5th Avenue, and then you go down 12th Street, past the 7-Eleven, and then you pull in the parking lot and you get out of your car and you go into the office and you work for four hours and then you have a lunch break. Then you walk down to the restaurant and you walk back up after lunch the same way you walk down, only backwards. Then you go back to your office. Then you go back to your car just backwards the way you got there. And you drive home just backwards the way you drove there. And you go into your house, you have dinner, you take off your day clothes, you put on your night clothes and get back into bed. That's why there are chiasms in the Bible. They are the structure of real life. From this finger, through this hand, to this elbow, to this shoulder, to this mug, to this shoulder, to this elbow, to this hand, to these fingers. That's, most of life is that way. It's unusual for Abraham to leave Ur and be able to say, I don't have to go back there. Odysseus has to get home. Coriolanus cannot leave Rome. And it is an amazing new thing in history when Abraham can leave a place and go to a new place looking to the future and not having to look back. That is a new thing in history. Once that's worked into people's consciousness, more people can live like that. Once you have a parent a mother with two tw uh, twins who are fighting in the womb and you don't kill one of the twins and you allow both twins to grow up and you run the risk that there'll be conflict because each one will have friends and they'll get into a fight over the inheritance and yet it's worked out in the next generation, you can have twins and there's, no, there's nothing, no story in the Bible about the next set of twins and how difficult it was. God has done something new. Well, those are the one-way streets, but those are relatively rare. In our lives, most things are chiastic. But that has to do with restructuring and glorifying the world. 
The Spirit is the breath of God. I've mentioned, well, we're going to come down to uh, music in just a minute, but He is the glorifying expression of the Word and the person of God. We glorify persons. I mean, look how gloriously I'm dressed. Isn't it wonderful? Well, actually, maybe not. But all of us put on clothes that we think make us look good. I have to say some of you could use a little help. But uh, maybe you need a wife to tell you, hey, buddy, you know, that tie does not go with those. You've got the holes in your blue jeans are in the wrong places or whatever. Uh, but we do. We, we adorn persons and we adorn language. If I am a good speaker, it's because my voice has contours in it that are expressive. And generally, it is a lifetime of experience that cultivates a person's voice into a decent piece of music that can be effective in speaking. Uh, young men often have to shout and yell to be understood, and an old guy can just kind of quietly talk to you and make you feel like you're nothing but a worm and you need to repent, all right? Don't have to shout to make that plain to you. If you're an old guy and your voice reflects all the years of suffering and dark nights of the soul you've been through, all right? Biography is a, uh, is a course in con training the human voice into an appropriate musical instrument to express the word. Biography is a course of training of the human voice to be an expressive vehicle for the Word of God. So that you as a grandparent can overleap. Every generation distances itself from the one just before it, but listens to the grandparents. Rosenstock Husey has a whole long discussion of this, which he calls a hinge of generations. We don't have grandparents that are effective right now, so our children don't have that benefit. They rebel against us or they distance ourselves from us. But we're the grandparents to fill in the gap. The grandparents' voices have gotten to the point where they can really talk to the kids better than you can because you get frustrated beyond belief. And grandparents don't have to get frustrated. That's breath. That's a glorification of person and language. And that's what the Spirit does. He's the glorifier. Now, he comes from the side of the second person as paraclete, and the same way the woman comes from the side of the man, and the woman is the glory of the man. She is, women are more spiritual than men because they are glorifiers. Men are pioneers, women are glorifiers. That's on the test. Now the spirit in Genesis chapter 2 comes into dust and creates human beings who are now the agents of the spirit. We are the agents of glorification in this world. We are the agents of transformation in this world. The spirit takes the world from glory to glory, the first six days of creation, and then he enters into us and it's our job to keep that going. We have to do it, and we do it by taking hold of the world, trans changing it, making it different, and hopefully making it better. If we're Christians, that's what we do. 
when you are in India and you walk past one house after another that is just a garbage heap and it's trash and all of a sudden you come to a house with a wall and flowers planted in the yard and everything looks neat, you know what you know? That's a Christian home. The mentality changes. Um, and um, that's what the Holy Spirit does. We restructure and glorify the world, changing it. We grab hold of the raw material, take it apart, put it together in new ways, give it new names, do all the things God does in Genesis 1. He separates waters above from waters below, puts a firmament in between, gives new names. That's heaven. Separates land and sea, gives new names. Land and sea. All right? And then the world is different from the way it was before. You uh, dig up dirt out of the ground and you smelt it and you have two things come out of it, gold and dross. All right? Now you've got gold and you've got dross. We'll use that as landfill or uh, as a basis for a road and we'll use the gold for something else. We have restructured the world and glorified it. And no human being can exist, human cultures cannot, ex cannot exist without doing that to some extent. There are enough weeds in the world to where if you don't pull up at least some of the weeds, you're not going to get any plants to eat. Now once the Holy Spirit comes, we learn to plant, tear up all the weeds and to plant seeds in rows. And all of a sudden the world grows and becomes far more productive than it ever was. A field with a few corn plants in it and hunter-gatherers barely making it, you know, that field will yield a hundred times more if you plow it properly and pull up the weeds and plant corn in rows. Guess how much? I mean, you have glorified the world hugely. And it is the Holy Spirit working through human beings restructuring the world that makes the world grow and be glorified. And the only way you get growth is through restructuring. In other words, it's not the way modern people want to think. If you get rid of all the structure, then we just have this freedom and all this freedom and growth will blossom out. That's the modern view. It's the opposite of that. When you structure things, yet that's when you can produce tremendous glory and growth. Uh, you will hear that nobody's more structured than Bach. And symphony orchestras that go down into the wilds of Mexico and play music by Carlos Chavez and by Mozart and by Bach. People don't, people think, well, that's kind of cool, but we want, we want more Bach. Chavez may be premier number one Mexican composer. I like Chavez's symphonies, but what they want is more Bach. Bach has this universality of glory that pours through the fact that he is so highly structured. He takes what had been there for a long time and he structures it more fully than anything else. He writes at the end of his life these climax pieces like the art of the fugue, which takes all these dead forms of music that everybody makes fun of 
and brings them to their perfection and makes something that's just unbelievable. And he, he writes the St. Matthew Passion and a musical offering and the Goldberg Variations, each of which is kind of like, this is my last will and testament of the perfect forms of these things, the clavier übung for organ. That's all because you can restructure the world because you have the Holy Spirit of God. Or you can restructure it and make it uglier and uglier. But human beings will always take hold of things and change them. Uh, and some of the restructuring might seem strange. Uh, some of you at least listen to Olivier Messiaen's Joy of the Blood of the Stars. <laughs> Nobody but Messiaen would ever give a title like that to a piece of music. What Messiaen does as a theologian composer is he starts with the sounds of nature, birdsong usually. He takes elements of human secular culture, uh, rhythmical modes from India, gamelan orchestras from Indonesia, and he adds to it Gregorian chant, processed through to put together nature, worship, and culture all bound together in a liturgical structure. That's his message. Sometimes it works better than others in my, as far as my ear is concerned. But uh, that's an example of somebody with the Spirit of God, a devout Christian, uh, theologian, composer, taking hold of the raw materials, reforming them, and making stuff that at least sometimes uh, nobody could say isn't glorious even if you have to grow another pair of ears to enjoy it. So let's talk uh, just briefly as we end with focusing in on breath, sound, and music. I'm going to change gears again. Okay, I talked about the three persons of God, their contributions to one another, and how we are focusing in on how the Spirit glorifies persons and words. We will also talk at some point about the Spirit glorifying Himself with what we call abstract music. But we'll get to that. Now we have talked about the Spirit as the one who creates, is the Lord of time, sequence, transformation, and uh, glorification. And now let's talk about breath, sound, and music. I mentioned that. All speech is music. And there's a difference between speech and sight, sound and sight. Let's talk about speech and sight. Speech is when I talk and when we talk to one another, it involves submission. Right now you have to submit to me, aren't don't you? Look at me when I talk to you. Did you see that? People just looked up because I got power. <laughs> I've got the power, okay? It, sight doesn't come with that. Uh, you can look at something. I can... I can read this Bible here, and it, it doesn't come to me with authority if I'm sitting at home reading it. I can, I can question it. I can be a liberal. I can distort it, all right? But coming through the ear comes with authority. And if you ever had a conversation with somebody, and it's obvious they're not listening to you, they're just waiting for an opportunity to jump in and say the next thing they want to say. There's no mutual authority going on there. Any conversation has to involve mutual submission back and forth as we listen to one another and one another, one another. Word alone, one another, occurs, what, 120 times in the New Testament? Seems like it's an important idea. 
The second thing we can say about speech is that it is uh, corporate. You are all listening to me and you're all having your minds changed, even if you are rejecting what I say. You are being changed by the fact that you're all listening to me and in the community of people listening to the same person constantly is being somewhat formed. When I go home and I read a book on my own, I'm an individual. There is a big relationship between the invention of the printing press and then the Industrial Revolution, cheap paper and cheap ink, uh, and the vociferation and individualism in our society. Okay? Now all our parachurch organizations want to teach us how to go home and have our own personal quiet time. Not that that's wrong. We've got to recover the church. Okay? Uh, speech is personal. Okay? Uh, sight is impersonal. Rosenstock Husey would say, sight is the organ of dominion, the things that I am in control of that are under me, and the ear is the organ of submission. So God comes to me with words. But if I look at an icon, it only says back to me what I already know. That's the danger in an icono iconocentric culture. I have to tell this to the Russian students. You know, you are in a culture where people don't learn to get along with one another. If they're upset, they just go and talk to a picture on a wall, and it can only say back to them what they already know. Even though it's got a couple of words on it, that's just symbolic. You know, that's not really giving you a word communication. Okay, so this, this is the danger. The, the book of Revelation talks about those who suffered for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus in opposition to the image of the beast. Okay, there's, there's, throughout the Bible, there's a warning about using the organ of dominion as a way to get to God. Of course, we sh decoration, art in the church, that's all fine, all fine and dandy. It's a matter of what you do with it. Now, music, because of these factors, because it's personal, because of its community aspect, because of its submission aspect, Music of various kinds creates strong bonds of community and personal loyalty. And this is why people get mad when you say your kind of music isn't the best kind. Because music is communitarian. And so is glory. Glory is social. Uh, around here, I was told I had to pick a, a football team I know nothing about football. I'm not even sure what the rules are. When I was in college, as an excuse to date girls, I went to three football games. Um, but around here, you're either Auburn or Alabama, and uh, I'm going to have to survive this Scylla and Charybdis uh, and the siren songs of Thalcipia and the other sirens as they want me to fall on these rocks and be destroyed. But, you know, if, if, your, if your team wins, you feel good. And if your team loses, you feel bad. Now, why? You didn't play. You have no skill to play. You weren't there. But glory is so, a social phenomenon. Okay? We should have our glory all bound up in Jesus. And we get our glory bound up in all these other kinds of things, which could be okay as secondary things. 
all right? But they, in our culture, all these things become primary. Uh, I'm just going to gripe for a minute. Is that okay? Please do. I'm amazed. I'm, I'm, I, when I go to church, and I don't have any church in mind, in fact, uh, less recently than other places I've been, it's like you get to church, and what are the men standing around talking about? Yesterday's game. Is that why we're here? That's what's important, you know. And to this afternoon's game. And Monday night's game. And whatever. All right. Now I've got the things that I like too, you know. I, I like classical music. I like science fiction, you know. So, all right. But uh, music, um, go back to that. Music has this very strong glory bond community function. And... Uh, this is our music. This is what I grew up with. And I feel right about this stuff. And when you try to change it, whether, whether you're telling people, look, this particular kind of rock music is garbage, uh, it's not healthy or whatever, or whether you're saying the stuff you like to sing in the church isn't very good. And if you look at the words and say, you know, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, you re have you really found it to be all that sweet? How about all that suffering in your life? Oh, okay. I come to the garden alone. Is that really a good idea? And he walks with me and he talks with me. I thought he said he was going away. Oh, I think Jeff Myers really got in trouble with his church. A lady, lady said, you know, I, I have my personal walk with Jesus. And he and I walked together. And Jeff said, but he said he was going away. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Not, not, not his best moment. <laughs> but of course, he does go away. He leaves at, he makes the woman to help Adam. And then he says, I'll leave and you two work it out. I no longer have Yahweh over here, but I got you, babe. You know, uh, that's Jeff has talked about that a lot. And it's really a good insight. God expects us to listen to our wives and in the uh, and to other people and in that interaction between people the spirit works and that is the way we move into the future god never intended to hold us by the hand and tell us everything along the way okay watch out you might trip okay look over here that's not how you grow that's not how you grow so it's good for you that i go away and the spirit come and give you this more indirect Work as you are in community with others. We've, we're in a culture that doesn't understand that well. We have to recover it. It's got everything to do with music. Um, the second thing I have down here is that sound is a form of vibration. And all I'm going to, all I meant to say by this is you could make a, a, a weapon that has such a low frequency that if you shot it at a building, it would make the building fall apart. And you can have a, uh, a spinto soprano, that's one with a very sharp, piercing voice, who can sing you a high D and shatter a crystal. Because sound is vibration, and it is a physical impact. Now this gets us back into our controversial theology around here. Uh, believe it or not, there are some controversial aspects to what we teach around here. 
And one of them is people say, well, you've got these, these aids like uh, God knew that, you know, we would need help. So he gave us baptism and bread and wine as helps because the word wouldn't be enough. Those are physical things. Look, the vibrations that are coming into your ear right now are every bit as physical as bread, wine, oil, and water. Every bit. And if God can use vibrations of a person's voice rattling three bones in your ear and into your physical brain, or go, uh, the sight of something going into your eye and into your brain, that is no less physical and sacramental than eating bread or having water put upon you. Now, having water put upon you is not the same thing as eating bread or drinking shalom-inducing beverage. And uh, that's not the same thing as having words go into your ear. But they're both physical, and you cannot escape the physicality of these things. Okay, And we have this whole Gnostic tradition uh, that says, you know, we, we, God works immediately with our spirit Without any mediation, well, okay, just get rid of the Bible. Oh, well, that's, you know, well, what is that? Well, it's mediation. <laughs> so vibration is physical. Our bodies are physical. We can't escape it. And that leads me to just some questions about the voice of God and some things I want you to think about in terms of the power of music. Psalm 29, you've heard these before. I'll read them. Just read this again talks about the voice of God. And where I'm going to go with this is ask us, what's going on in Genesis 1? All right. Verse 3. The voice of Yahweh is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh is upon many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is majestic. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yes, Yahweh breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Now there's that shattering voice. Blam! Makes trees explode. The voice does it. The sound does it. That's what it says. He makes them skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. He makes earthquakes happen as a result of the vibrations coming out of his voice. The same voice that was so loud and shattering that the people at Mount Sinai said, please send Moses up, talk to him, <laughs> shatter him, uh, uh, but don't make us listen to any more of this. The voice of Yahweh hews out flames of fire, shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer to calve. Now that stands out here. The strips the forest bare. Okay, right in the middle of all of this, it says, God's voice causes girl animals to give birth. Okay, now that's, that's a little bit on a different category, but it's still the idea that vibrations, the voice, of, unless this doesn't mean voice at all, uh, then voice of God is doing things. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, Let's read it as if it actually was talking about God saying things. Verse 2, the earth <clears throat> was formless, shapeless, and empty and dark. Three problems. Formlessness, emptiness, and darkity. 
Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, God put forth wordness in some ineffable way. Let there be light. That's the way I naturally have read this all my life. You know, did God actually say things into outer space where was there outer space? What was, what was the nature of the world? God says, let there be light, and the vibrations of his voice cause light to appear. I think the spirit of his hovering starts to become the glory spirit. He lights the glory chariot at that point, so to speak. speak. Let there be a firmament in the midst of waters. God made the firmament. This it says he made it. So let there be and then made puts these two things together. Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. The vibrations of his voice, the same vibrations that cause cedar trees to explode and mountains to shake, causes the land to rise up and waters to recede back. Uh, or something like that happens at this point. Or else we can be theistic evolutionists and say this is just a poem, but... Around here we're not. So uh, then I loved uh, one of our first students, and I don't remember which one it was, made this point. You, you remember which one it was when I say this. Let the earth sprout forth grass, herbs seeding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the land, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation. Now, here we have God really speaking to the soil, and the soil hears and responds. This is language and response already starting here, and this is the raw material that human beings are made out of. So we're already into this voice of God, language response on the part of the creation that's not supposed to have any kind of intelligence, uh, maybe this is a Sheldrakean creation that has got some absolutely minimal ability to respond to what God says and even to what people might think or say. I want you to think about that because if that's true, then that means God sang these things because you can't say anything without singing it. So when Tolkien says at the beginning of the Silmarillion that Iluvatar sang the universe into being, is he right? Is that... Tolkien's poetry, poetic fantasy, designed to make us think about stuff, probably in his mind. But if we were there, would you have heard anything? Would there have been vibrations? The simplest reading of the text is yes. That the world was made by music. Music has this power to transform and change things. And now once we get into human life, Part of the burden of my lectures is going to be that music, the right kind of music, the right kind of words with music, the right kind of situation, has an amazing ability to transform human culture. And we don't use this as a sword that the Bible speaks of as a weapon in our hands, evangelistic weapon, that we don't use. So I, I think, personally, you know, if I was going to have to guess that um, we should read this more literally than we have been, I'm not going to be terribly disappointed if it turns out not to be the case, but I think we ought to think about it. And uh, so that's what I wanted to...
put in front of you in this first lecture. And I'm done. Time for questions? Oh, question. Yeah, I have a question about just looking at just words, teasing out uh, lines of speaking versus singing creation. Just words like just doing etymology stuff like enchantment, enchanted forests, or um, you know things like that, the musical side of the creational things. I mean, that just studying language, we think of you know reading, uh, I mean, reading Lewis and language and the word, there's deep magic that they speak of. You know, uh, Lewis talks about uh, a deep enchantment uh, that she did not know the, the, the witch. I mean, just if we even study language, we see there's a musical quality to creation language like that. We just think abracadabra today if we say cast a spell or something's enchanted. Or well, you, you have to intone a spell. And, and Lewis would have been very much aware of that with his medievalism. Um, it's like the way the, the Narnia books trace the planets of the sky and, or the way that the uh, uh, Harry Potter books are using alchemy in the names of the characters. Uh, people, who, people who get immersed in the Middle Ages, it wouldn't be surprising to me if, if Luther, Lewis is thinking musically there. Yeah, we have to demodernize, and we have to demodernize our translations yeah, on a completely different tact. You know, the, the tabernacle is an image of a human being, and because of our translations, we don't see that. We don't see that it has shoulders, and it has arms, and it has feet. Um, we have neutralized those to other kinds of words, but to the ancient world, they're hearing that this building has shoulders, and it has arms, and it has legs. Uh, it's much more obvious to them that it's a model of a uh, human being that encases all the other human beings and is the, the center of their lives. Yeah. One of the, the refrains that I heard you make, as well as Ken Myers, was, you know, faith is set up against sight in Scripture. Yeah, it's not, faith is not set against works, but it's about sight. And yet, I think, you know, Paul then says later on, faith is, only comes by hearing. Yeah. Well, can you unpack that for a minute? I mean, what is it, the two senses, is, is there something to the sense itself that makes sight antagonistic toward faith that makes it the... No, no, it's human beings that make sight antagonistic to faith. And I think sight there stands for uh, understanding how things are right now. Uh, our problem in Western philosophy is timelessness. And, um, but we live in time and nothing is the same from time to time. Uh, Rosenstock Hussey, as you may know, takes Descartes to task for saying, I think, therefore I am. He says, that's stupid. The reason you know you exist is because other people talk to you. Uh, and uh, the better way to think about it is, I will respond to what's happening to me, even though I will be changed. You have to think about that for a minute. If you refuse to respond to the stimuli that's in the world, to other people, to uh, what's coming across your path, if, 
If you refuse to respond to having a massive heart attack and going through that and then thinking, okay, what does this mean for me? You wind up in an insane asylum refusing to have contact in the world. But if you have contact in the world, every little thing that happens makes you different from the way you were before. So you cannot ground your confidence in who you are. Because <laughs> who I am tomorrow is not going to be the same. It can't be in me. So it can only be a matter of trusting God and uh, that I am hid with Christ in God, whatever happens to me. So I think that's the way that faith, sight, as, as Ken was saying, deals with the present. You can see things, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that. We're supposed to do that. But if we say, I can see how things are right now, and that becomes my confidence, things are always going to be that way, then not going to always be that way. Or I can turn back to the past. Uh, you know, the way it was 300 years ago in the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, we just want to imitate that, repristinate that. You can't do that. First place, you have no idea what things were really like. You wouldn't like it if you did. People smell bad. Uh, and bathe like we do, you know. But um, you, you cannot live in the, you cannot trust the present or the future. You can only trust God uh, for your future. And that, I think it's that aspect of faith that, um, that trusts God for all the things that will change and happen to me. Uh, that is what puts it in opposition to sight and the things you can see and understand. So as good as our theology is, we have to realize that it's going to change somewhat. You know, 500 years from now, people are going to look back and say, well, those guys did the best they could. <laughs> you know, children of their times. <laughs> Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.